Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, this is Kyone Wolf. I'm here with Jonathan McNichol, or Jonathan McPants, as you may know him. And we're taking uh, just a second before you listen to this podcast to say, first of all, you have very good taste in podcasts and public radio if you're listening. But uh, we also would really appreciate it if you could support this show and all the work that producers like Jonathan McPants put into it. Pants, while I've got you, what's your favorite part of being a producer for The Colin McEnroe Show? It's easily watching Betsy Kaplan yell at Colin when he screws things up. <laughs> there's, there's no competition. It's just that. It's the only reason to come into work is just to watch that dynamic. Yes, exactly. That's it's, it, it's that and it's it's this thing we do every every day where we where we take, as you said once on stage, a master's course in whatever the topic is each day and make 50 minutes of radio out of it, regardless of if it's towels or whatever ISIS is doing. That's the thing. It's it's a continual learning experience that I just love every day. Yeah, I think we all do. So the number to call to support that and to keep this going is 1-800-584-2788. You can go to wnpr.org slash donate. I'll do your voicemail or a motivational wake-up message mm-hmm. or whatever. But uh, that being said, let's get to the show. Good morning, brown and white monkey. Morning, brown and yellow monkey. What are you doing? Looks like you're packing up. Yeah, I'm not going to be working in grooming. I'm moving up to that branch up there. Well, but what does that mean? I'm deputy director for high-pitched yelling. Technically, you'll be reporting to me. I don't understand. And what's that shiny thing? It's a stapler. With my new job, I get a stapler. What does it do? I don't know, but I totally get a stapler because I'm management now. How how do I get a stapler? You have to change your thinking. I've been reading, like, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Monkeys, What Color Are the Feces You're Throwing, and How to Present Like a Mandrill. I feel like such a loser. You are a loser. See that monkey over there? She just got moved up to senior vice president for apricots, and she's a nothing monkey. Well, how do I move up? Uh, start with the little things. Let's see you bare your teeth. Like this? Okay, keep them bared and say, Give me those apricots, termite breath! Give me those apricots, termite breath! Put a growl in your voice, more dominance. Give me those apricots, termite breath! Great. Practice that and we'll talk later. Can I touch your stapler? No freaking way! Let me touch that stapler or I'll break your stupid monkey face! Okay. I mean, that was good. You you were practicing, right? You weren't actually... <sighs> ah! Today on the show, does it always have to be like this? Are hierarchies necessary? Shouldn't we be better than monkeys? Hey, I resent that. And now the author of Who Moved My Banana... Colin McEnroe. That is what we're going to be talking about today. Are human beings essentially egalitarian and is our current hierarchical way of living kind of an idenic fall? Somehow we've kind of lost track of who we really are in state of nature or are we fundamentally hierarchical and there's sort of no way to get away from it? Or, and this is kind of a spoiler, as I will argue and perhaps some of the guests will argue too, is there sort of a sweet spot argument that in fact we need enough hierarchy 
to guarantee some kind of sensible distribution of power, but not so much hierarchy that people start to feel exploited. I personally think that's where I'm going to wind up. But on the other hand, what's the point of doing the show if I already know where I'm going to wind up? Uh, that's what we have wonderful guests for. And in terms of the hierarchy of the show, I think they outrank me. For the first segment here, our guests are going to be Christopher Baum. He is professor of biological sciences and anthropology, uh, as well as former director of the Goodall Research Center at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Hierarchy in the Forest, the Evolution of Egalitarian Behavior. Also with us, uh, Melvin Fine, a professor of sociology at Kennesaw State University in Atlanta. He's the editor of the Journal of Public and Professional Sociology and the author of Human Hierarchies, a General Theory. So we are going to sort of start uh, back in the garden a little bit. Uh, we're going to start back in the jungle, though. So Christopher Baum, I think you got on the line late. You didn't hear the two uh, monkeys talking about one of the monkeys' promotions. But this is sort of often where we begin this conversation, right? What were we like before we were humans? What, what's the model that we have uh, for primate behavior that tells us how our ancestors organized themselves into society. So, so what, is, what does that model tell us? Does it consistently tell us a story of hierarchical behavior? This is a uh, very interesting question because chimpanzees and bonobos are the best models for our ancestral behavior, and both of them live in hierarchies. That is, they have alpha males, and they have beta males, and they have males on down the line. And bonobos also have a female hierarchy. Uh, chimpanzees seem to not have a very defined one. But basically, life is hierarchical. The top dog gets all the best stuff. And the name for that we give scientifically to the social organization that results is a social dominance hierarchy. However, these animals have several dispositions that make all of this happen. Uh, inherited dispositions, that is. And one of them, of course, is simply uh, to fight or bluff or dominate. Another is to submit. It's deep in their bones. And yet another is to resent being dominated. And the resentment of domination is much less prominent in the literature on dominance hierarchies, but it's very important because uh, in these species, at least, uh, they form coalitions, that is, alliances, uh, which enable them to outsmart the hierarchy, as it were. Uh, two subordinates can get together, form a, an allegiance, and then operate together against someone who ranks higher and actually outbluff them, outfight them if necessary, and get the stuff, be it meetings or food or maybe just a better position in space. So hierarchy is not just a set dominance order in which the top dog overpowers the one below him and so forth on down the line, but rather it's a system in which individuals can form competing coalitions, even though they're subordinate, and raise their own dominant status. Well, one of the questions we would have, too, would be, what are the attributes of the dominant male? And it seems to me, whether we're talking about chimpanzees or projecting from there to early bands of, of hominids, pre-homo sapiens, hominids, early homo sapiens, it, it seems to me that the, the alpha male can't simply be this figure of enormous strength, violence, and sexual potency that's for the organization, the band, to thrive the alpha male also has to have some kind of sense of distribution, of sharing, right? If everything just goes to the alpha male, everybody else dies. 
Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, the alpha male flourishes, and the rest of them flourish a bit less well. Uh, that's the way evolution works. It's not as though the alpha male is killing everybody else. The alpha male is merely out-competing. Any time that I've watched a group of chimpanzees approach a, a tree with really great fruit in it, uh, what you see is a very subtle bending of everybody away from the alpha male. The alpha male goes straight to the best spot in the tree. Everybody else gets a spot, too, depending on their rank. And they're all eating. So everybody's eating, but the alpha male's eating just a little bit better than everyone else. And that does assure him better reproductive success. He, he will have more sur surviving offspring. And this, of course, will keep alpha male characteristics in the, in the uh, genome. We also know that it, 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 you know, to use the vernacular, it sucks not to be the alpha male. I mean, we look, you look at, some, at vervet monkeys, lower-ranking vervet monkeys have serotonin levels that are half of those of alpha males. And low-status yellow baboons have elevated levels of the stress hormone cortisol. That there, there are indications that, and as you sort of suggested earlier on in the conversation, that the lower-level primates in some kind of hierarchy, they're not happy about it. Uh, yes, they're they're not happy about it, and that is the that's the motivation for their forming these subordinate coalitions, which actually increase the power of subordinates because they can act uh, together against a single alpha male or higher ranking male. It isn't necessarily the alpha, and it's true that there are costs to submission, and that when you form a coalition and get out of that submissive role you're going to do better reproductively. So there are evolutionary pressures, both for alphahood, as it were, and for individuals who are rank lower to form these alliances in order to advance their reproductive success. Now, in terms of, of Homo sapiens, we don't live exactly that way. In other words, we don't live with just one dominant alpha male. What do we know about the history of Homo sapiens? Was there some point, and it might have been a spear point, actually, at which they veered away from the kind of structure that you're describing in primates. Well, first, let me disagree with you about the nature of our alpha males. It depends on what country you live in. Mm -hmm. If you lived in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, uh, you were living under a despotic alpha male. Mm -hmm. It happens many places in the world, although democracies may be around 50% of, of uh, the world's uh, nations are, are democratic. But to go back to prehistory, humans, if you look at the hunter-gatherers who are the most like the people that were living 50,000 years ago, <clears throat> these were hunter-gatherers, they were mobile, and they were egalitarian. And anthropologists have used the word egalitarian millions of times because it's so important. And egalitarianism in a hunter-gatherer band means the following. The, the males among themselves insist on political parity. That is, everyone is defined essentially as equal. They know that some people are stronger, some people are better looking, some people are better hunters, and so on. But nobody is allowed to boss around uh, anyone else among the adult males. Nobody is allowed to assert his own prerogatives in ways that 
for self-aggrandizing, that is, to boast or brag or put yourself above others. As a result, you have a group that is ideologically oriented to equality among the males. It doesn't apply to children. It seldom applies to females, at least not fully. But among the males, you don't mess with them because if one of them messes with the other, the other guy will be armed. These guys, they go around armed all the time with lethal hunting weapons, and the weapons tend to equalize uh, the politics of the group. Although it sounds that sounds potentially hierarchical. I, mean, I want to just I want to um, add Melvin Fine to this conversation. So Melvin Fine, you're listening to what Christopher Baum, Christopher Baum is saying. One of the things that people who study hierarchies and particularly historical hierarchies do try to figure out is at what point the kind of egalitarian structure that Christopher Baum is uh, describing was no longer practical or no longer practiced. So uh, do you have a demarcation point, a sense of, sense of where we veered off in a different direction? Well, first of all, I would say that we were never completely egalitarian, although yes, indeed. Uh, you know, I, I think of this, uh, uh, Gerhard Lenski, who talks about social distance between the top and bottom at hierarchies, and among hunter-gatherers, the distance between the top and the bottom is very slight, but you still had leaders of the band, of the hunting band, and so on, but they did indeed have to worry about their colleagues a great deal. Now, what has happened with human beings is that we, as we have evolved our various ways of surviving, see, we're social generalists. Unlike many other creatures, we have many, many ways of earning a living. And one of the things that happened is we went from hunter-gatherers to uh, farmers, agriculturalists, uh, um, and ultimately into an industrial society. And instead of having one way of uh, earning a living, we have many, many different ways to earn a living. And whereas if you have a small group with maybe 20 men or something like that, you have one major hierarchy. In our society, our mass society, there are many, many hierarchies. You can be a, a great baseball, baseball player and you can be a terrible engineer. It, you know, there are many, many ways to be successful and to be superior in our kind of society. So, Christopher Baum, you know, one of the questions people have inevitably has to do with what's what's our wiring? What are we wired to be? What's our what's our true nature? But it sounds like you're kind of saying, well, our true nature is one of flexibility under certain circumstances we will be hierarchical under other circumstances we will be egalitarian uh yes that's that's precisely what my message would be uh namely uh let's make it a bit more specific um if if we are in fact a hierarchical species and i i would say that we are predominantly oriented to hierarchy in that uh if we don't work very hard against hierarchy it asserts itself and it's the subordinate coalitions of hunter-gatherers where the entire group of males uh, basically make sure that their leader is very, very humble and generous. They make sure that no male throws his weight around, uh, doesn't try to boss others, and so on. Uh, this, is, this is what results in a what I call a reversed dominance hierarchy, which is something you hinted at before. Uh, namely... Uh, it's not that we lose hierarchical behavior. We change it because the subordinates are firmly in control, in the hunting band at least. And the, and the rest of the group uh, 
is capable of enforcing its moral uh, values, which have to do with being equal, that is, males being equal. And, of course, what happened uh, with the transition to farming is that a few of these farmers formed hierarchical uh, uh, organizations, so their politics became uh, those of people with strong leaders and and even social classes developed, which is unthinkable in a hunting band. And as a result, uh, we, re re we return to the type of hierarchy that apes have and that our ancestors had. But we can do either, and it depends on whether we form a coalition of subordinates to rule out alpha males or whether we just let things ha happen naturally, which means that we will have alpha males. All right, we're going to grab a break right now. We're going to thank uh, say thank you very much to Christopher Baum. We're going to come back with more of Melvin Fine. Joining us will be another guest. We'll talk about ways to try to avoid hierarchies. The hierarchy, the hierarchy is such All right. The subject is hierarchies. And also sort of the question, are, are we inherently hierarchical, so inherently hierarchical that we can't outlive that destiny? Um, or is there an egalitarian streak in us somewhere? Or is that our primary streak? Did we somehow other fall from the garden and become hierarchical? A nice, easy topic for talk radio. Melvin Fine is with us. Uh, I'll tell you more about him or I'll remind you more about him in just a second. But we're also joined now by Stephen Peterson. Uh, he's director of the School of Public Affairs at Penn State Harrisburg. Focusing on the intersection of biology and politics, he's the co-author of Darwinism, Dominance, and Democracy. Uh, Stephen Peterson, I want to kind of begin where Melvin Fine just left off. And he said, we all want to win. Everybody wants to win within a system. But the other thing that we know is that, that within a, closed, a smaller closed system, selfishness will beat altruism. But then when your, your system goes up against another system, your band goes up against another band, the more altruistic, altruistic band will often triumph over the more selfish band, right? The, the group of people that learns to be altruistic and cooperative and self-sacrificing and place the, the, the well-being of the group ahead of individual well-being often will triumph over its opponent. Is that... Am I being fair here? I think that's fair. Uh, there's been an awful lot of work done on altruism, cooperation, and such. And to say that, uh, for example, humans are just inherently self-centered obviously isn't correct, as you phrase the issue there. Uh, and certainly uh, cooperation and altruism can become very important when you have uh, groups conflicting with one another. Uh, in a sense, the willingness to risk injury and so on on behalf of the group is something that, uh, when there is conflict, uh, can be very positive in terms of winning and losing. Although, Melvin Fine, I'm assuming that you would also say there's something inherently hierarchical at work somewhere in that system. In other words, you know, we know that a, a group, a unit of Navy SEALs, they are taught to value each other above everything else, uh, to care for one another, not leave one another behind, endanger themselves in order to get a, a wounded member uh, of the group back. They, they're an example of this kind of intra-group altruism. But a group of Navy SEALs or any other group like that, they work for somebody. There's somebody further up in the, in the hierarchy who does not have to subscribe to those ideas, correct? 
That is absolutely right. Yes, we cooperate, but we also compete. And we have leaders. We have what's called imperative coordination. You have, if you have a group of people doing a complex project, it's got to be organized. And sometimes there's got to be a decision maker who says, we will do A, we will not do B, and has to enforce that upon occasion to make sure that it is done. Cooperation is all well and good, but were we exclusively cooperative, we would never have succeeded as a species. Being hierarchical is one of our great uh, uh, virtues. So, but Stephen uh, Peterson, one of our other virtues or inclinations, I mean, we as we look across the span of history, obviously we see hierarchy, lots and lots and lots of hierarchy, but we also see attempts to do something differently, something to, uh, uh, attempts even going on right now to organize oneself around or people around the notion of a commons. You look at some of the Scandinavian uh, societies where there does seem to be uh, an emphasis on bringing everybody along together. I mean, is it necessarily the case that we can't completely purge ourselves of our hierarchical natures? Well, I think purging ourselves completely is probably a bridge too far. Uh, but certainly, if you look at human societies, uh, from small groups to larger entities, uh, there are both cooperative elements and then the competitive elements uh, along the lines of hierarchy. And certainly, there are gradations across society. In some societies, there is much greater inequality than others, so that there is variation uh, across countries if we're looking at that particular level of analysis. And then the question is, why are there such differences going beyond just either are they cooperative or hierarchical and so on? Well, and, and do, we, do we have answers to that question? Why, are those, why do those differences exist? Well, if you look at uh, economic inequality, which, uh, again, you can say there are hierarchies in terms of the economic system. Uh, one of the standard views is that the more unequal the uh, level of economic inequality, the more difficult it is to see democratic governments in action. And again, not to romanticize democratic governments, uh, we're hardly out of the hierarchical woods in a democracy. There will still be hierarchies there, but uh, the point is that economic inequality can affect, in this case, political or power differentials. And uh, Melvin Fine, it sounded like you were ready to chime in there, too. I mean, I'm fascinated by this question that, for example, I don't know, we did a, a show about Finland and particularly looked at the Finnish educational system. And one of the ways in which the Finnish educational system, at least nominally, in terms of what it averts to, um, differs from the American system is there, re there actually really is a notion of no child left behind, that, that they are offended almost by the idea that one group of children would prevail, would succeed in a way that they, they would rather have everybody being pretty close to the same level than have people break out in, into a kind of excellence that isn't enjoyed by the other children. And, and if you try to introduce that idea into American society, you'll be shouted down. It actually troubles us. So it does seem anyway there's variation within the human race on questions like this. Well, I'm, I'm certainly one. I'm not an egalitarian in this sense. I believe in meritocracy. What I want is not everybody equal. What I want is equal opportunity. 
I want people to be able to rise according to their merits. And therefore, I want social mobility. I want a system where people can succeed if they are able to see, if they have the ability, if they put in the effort, if they do the job. I don't want to make everybody the same because the only way to do that is not just to have mediocrity, but sub-mediocrity. We would be destroyed as a nation if we did that. And Stephen, uh, I'm also wondering, just to go back to what you said before, I asked you, well, can the human race purge itself of, of hierarchical qualities? And you said probably not. I mean, I think that stands to reason simply because any system that we're talking about, whether it's the Finnish education system or something else, has to have at least enough of a hierarchy to distribute power, right? I mean, if in fact we are, we're all just completely independent actors and nobody rules over us and there's no hierarchy, then, then there is no way even to distribute power or administer the principles that, that, that somebody's articulated? Well, it certainly seems to be inherent among us humans that uh, uh, hierarchy helps to organize decision-making, collective activity, and so on. One of the interesting questions when you bring up Finland is why in some societies does it appear that those tendencies may be a bit more muted than in other societies? And I think that's a very interesting question. And a colleague of mine and I once asked that with respect to democracy. Uh, how does democracy arise when, again, the default option among humans is often hierarchy? And one of the things is that uh, humans can end up coming to believe in ideas that may move against some of those tendencies. Uh, my colleague and I use the term indoctrinability to describe that. So it may be that, to some extent, adopting certain values may, to a modest extent, mute hierarchy, certainly not get rid of it. But uh, you see strange things among humans. We talk about uh, the importance of leaving offspring as a product of natural selection and evolution, and yet we see at Masada, at Jonestown, group suicides, which seem to move absolutely away from that notion, and yet it appears that their values were such that uh, they behaved in a way that really goes against the desire to leave offspring. But again, I think that uh, to say that that can get rid of hierarchy is, again, a bridge too far. Yeah, and certainly if you look at something like Jonestown, well, that's a fundamentally hierarchical system. It couldn't be more hierarchical. In fact, every all power and notions of truth, all authority vested in one single highly charismatic figure. In fact, what people have agreed to do in in that situation tacitly is to participate in an ultimately hierarchical system. But even not even the kind of complex hierarchical system that we we expect with that large a group of people. You're correct. I think that you could say that there's an interaction there. The values were such that it uh, reinforced the leader saying, here's what we have to do. Um, Melvin Fine, I think another interesting way to look at this is to look at what human beings do when you put a bunch of people who don't know each other together in a new situation. And so, I mean, famously, this was done in the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment where you, know, you had these uh, groups of students who were placed into these, these role-playing situations, and they really completely gravitated almost immediately towards these very hierarchical and aggression-based models of behavior. But you don't really need to do the Stanford prison experiment. You can look at prison, right? Prison is a situation in which a whole bunch of people who haven't voluntarily formed a society are 
extracted from their previous society and placed in a new one. What does that teach us about hierarchy? Look, we human beings are forever comparing ourselves with one another. We want to know who's taller, who's shorter, who can jump higher, who can shoot a basketball better, who's a better talker, who is smarter, who is whatever. We always want to be better. We all want to be special. We always want to be the favorite one, for heaven's sakes, wherever we are. So you put us together, yeah, people compete. And especially if they don't know one another, if they don't have previous relationships, if they don't have rules constraining their behavior, then yet things can get out of hand a bit. In point of fact, in, in, in societies such as ours, we are not just thrown together. We get together under very structured kinds of circumstances. And this constrains our hierarchies. It channels them in some directions and not others. In other words, I am saying there are many, many ways in which our uh, uh, hierarchies are organized. Not just uh, ideology, not just morality. All those do, in fact, play a part. I mean, if you want the perfect example of that, uh, of what you're saying before about this, the desire to compare, I mean, we certainly do that when we watch professional sports or collegiate sports. But even more, I mean, increasingly, one of the more um, spellbinding and attention-getting sports events of the year involves absolutely no active competition whatsoever, and that's the NFL draft. And talk about hierarchies. I mean, if you're a first-round draft choice, it's really different from if you're a fourth-round draft choice. It's going to dictate some of your immediate future. It's going to dictate the resources that are allocated towards you. It's going to dictate the expectations that are projected onto you. I mean, it's, a, it's an artificial system, but it's so unbelievably hierarchical, and people seem to enjoy it so much. It's almost as if, uh, Melvin Fine, we really want to see exactly that process played out in, in a way that we can watch it vicariously. You're absolutely right. But look at it. If you're drafted in the NFL, you had better perform once you get on the field. If you don't, you are going to sink way, way down. They're not going to be number one at all. Bottom line, it's the performance that matters. The, re the reason we love sports is that sports gives us precision about hierarchy, in, especially in a society where we don't know everybody. Sports tells us this is number one. This is at the bottom. This is what people do at sports bars. They argue incessantly. Who is number one? Who is the best? We want to know. It matters to us. Um, Stephen, uh, are there examples um, of, of intentional anti-hierarchical systems, societies, experiments, things that worked either short-term or long-term? Well, certainly if you look at history, there have been efforts at creating societies that are less hierarchical, more egalitarian. In the United States, there were a number of these utopian societies. Um, Josiah Warren uh, developed modern times in Long Island. There were Owenite communities uh, and any number. Uh, most of these tended to be small in size, and uh, their life expectancy was not very long necessarily. But the fact that these experiments develop, uh, to me, is very interesting. It's almost as if we are, some groups are trying consciously to move against natural impulses of hierarchy. And in the economic sector for a while, there were numerous employee-owned businesses in the plywood industry in the Pacific Northwest where the employees weren't necessarily the ones running the company, but they had a fair degree of influence over uh, the country. And if you look at the Spanish Civil War, you would find 
anarchists, you would find socialists, you found uh, Trotskyites, uh, some more hierarchical than others, but again, each one uh, trying to move against uh, the hierarchy that had uh, characterized the country earlier. And again, uh, certainly the communists were not democratic, uh, but again, there were these different impulses, uh, again, trying to create uh, new structures, new societies, some much less hierarchical than others. And again, the duck guns talked the loudest, um, and perhaps uh, helped somewhat by the fact that uh, the people of Spain were more comfortable with hierarchy than not. Uh, I'm getting a tweet from Anne. Signs of hierarchy, ill health of women and especially children, ratio of male to female in population balance better with more women. All right, we have to take a little break. We'll come back with more after this. Hey, you're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show. Obviously, you definitely know that. I'm Kyone Wolf. I'm here with Carlos Mejia. He's our new digital producer. I mean, he's he's somewhat new, but he's been learning the ropes really fast, and he's been doing things like getting these shows to you online and on Facebook Live and among other things. And we just wanted to take a moment to say, hey, you're listening to this cool show, and we're also raising money for it. And the number to call is 1-800-584-2788. But I wanted you to meet Carlos. And Carlos, what's been your favorite part so far in your in your tenure at Connecticut Public? Just the fact that every day is going to be something completely new, completely random. And I don't mean that just working for this show because that's already a given, but working across the board for all the shows. But in particular for Colin's show, I mean, this week I recorded a video of a dog getting his teeth brushed. Just something totally random like that. I mean, about a month ago I was recording four people doing stand-up at the CT Improv Theater. And those are the sort of things that are just really cool and fun and quirky and just something I've never really had a chance to do before. And it's unique and it's creative and it's just a lot of fun to be a part of the whole ride. Yeah, and there's really nothing like it anywhere on any public radio station. So if you can support us right now by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate, that would be really helpful. Write in the comments or say to the nice real person who's answering the phone that you want to support the Colin McEnroe Show and the people who sign our paychecks pay attention to that sort of thing. And maybe we can uh, take our show, I don't know, to Vegas or something or Burning Man. I don't know. But that would be really cool if you could support us now. 1-800-584-2788. Let's get back to that last segment of the show. I don't mind being part of a hierarchy. I mind being part of a lowerarchy. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Hallie St. Germain and Alex Dubin. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sir Patrick Stewart. For show pages, articles, and video for the Faith Middleton Show staff's prison experiment, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, meet a chamber music quintet that covers Radiohead. And now, back to Colin. We're talking about the nature of hierarchy. We're talking to Melvin Fine. Uh, he is professor of sociology at Kennesaw State University uh, and the author of several books, including Human Hierarchies, A General Theory. Uh, Stephen Peterson uh, is director of the School of Public Affairs at Penn State Harrisburg. And uh, his books, and he's the co-author of Darwinism, Dominance and Democracy. Um, 
I want to talk, uh, Melvin Fine, just for a moment, uh, talk to both of you about the Internet. So the Internet is in some ways the, one of the newest societies to be invented. And there certainly was a notion at the start of the Internet that, that it would be more level, leveling, less hierarchical, that, you know, on the Internet, nobody even knows who you are. Nobody knows that you're a dog so that you can participate on a relatively level playing field. And if we want to narrow the focus a little bit uh, from the Internet, we can even talk about Wikipedia. Wikipedia was supposed to be this kind of utopian, commons-oriented, communitarian system of agreeing about information. But it seems to me, Melvin Fine, that, that even there, hierarchies almost have to emerge. I don't know. How does the Internet look to you? Or, or if you want to be specific, how does Wikipedia look to you? Of course there are hierarchies. Not everybody is paid attention to on the Internet. Not every blog is read. Of course not, for heaven's sakes. And, and as to Wikipedia, you know, it's sort of like, um, it's pretty darn good when they do neutral subjects. These things can be really excellent. When they start get to get controversial, now ideology comes in and you get competition and you get the people who are making the decisions, deciding what is going to be there and what is not going to be there. I mean, there's no, there's no such thing as something that is completely unstructured. It would, be, it would be so wild that nobody could even make sense of it. Although Stephen Peterson, sometimes theorists think about what, what would it be like if I lived in a society where I just worked on things that I enjoyed working on? In other words, if division of labor were done that way, if I just did the work that I enjoyed doing and other people enjoyed, did the work that they enjoyed doing uh, and nobody structured that work, nobody bossed us around. We just made choices based on that. But it, it does seem that sooner or later, once again, these hierarchies emerge. Well, certainly, I think uh, that you're correct there. Uh, for an economy to operate, there has to be some degree of division of labor. There have to be people playing certain roles and so on. And in market economies, uh, uh, the market itself helps to move people in one direction or another where there's greater demand. And if you look at command societies, uh, then the government or whatever ruling group there is may end up uh, having a role in who does what, uh, but certainly there needs to be some sort of structure, whether it's market or uh, some central authority, in order to make sure that we get the goods and services that we need to delivered properly. Although, Stephen, it does seem as though, um, you know, markets are re a really interesting example. So a market it, uh, it may it has structure, but in order to function, it can't be completely hierarchical, right? In other words, I can't insist on getting to de deriving. Well, I could I could try to rig it with through credit default swaps and not telling people what I'm doing, and I can kind of go, go Goldman Sachs on you and try to fully take advantage of you. But really, in, in an odd way, a market does represent that sweet spot between hierarchical behavior and egalitarian behavior. If I insist on deriving eighty percent of the advantage from the market. Nobody's going to participate in the market with me, right? It has to be a little bit closer or maybe even a lot closer to 50-50. Well, in markets, there is competition and a number of the players uh, try to make sure that they come out in better shape than others. Uh, markets have failures built into them where they don't really perform 
as an ideal type, and this can create distortions, which can also, which can often mean, uh, again, a degree of hierarchy. If you look at large corporations, uh, in some sectors, you have a very small number of organizations that dominate an industry, meaning that we have pretty clear distortion in the operation of markets. They can be large enough to prevent entry into that particular arena. Uh, we've seen that in the auto industry uh, before, where new entrants just don't have the ability to make it because of those who already are dominant in that industry. Um, Melvin Fine, um, this sort of goes also back to what you were saying before, which was that, that you you want equality of opportunity as opposed to enforced uh, egalitarianism. Um, so um, once again, a market is a really interesting vehicle when you look at that. Um, there, if there's extreme inequalities, ultimately the market won't work unless it's imposed on people by force, by some outside entity. For For an actual market to function, there has to be at least... Or, or what Stephen just said, you have to be able to believe that you could win in the market. There's got to be some plausible argument that you as a participant have a chance of winning. In a large market, you have to have mechanisms to prevent cheating, mm. because in a large market, people can fool one another. So that's why we have governments, for example, to make sure that there's rules against lying or what have you, or, or rigging the stock market or whatnot. Nevertheless, markets are about exchange, and they're about exchange of values. And people don't become successful in the marketplace unless they have value to exchange. In other words, um, Amazon.com has made Jeff Bezos very, very rich. There's no question about that. But he has given value to millions and millions of people. You, you know, I buy books from him all the bloody time. I'm not upset that he is a billionaire now because I benefit from what he has achieved. Okay, And as I'm personally not envious at all. As long as I have an opportunity to pursue what I'm interested in, for example, writing the books. Um, yeah, you know, it's I'm relating this a little bit to I'm in the middle of reading Wolf Hall right now. And so Wolf Hall takes place in the time of, of Henry VIII. And, and so there's an example of sort of old school hierarchy, divine right of kings hierarchy, except that part of the message of Wolf Hall is that Thomas Cromwell, this aide to Henry VIII, is one of the first globalists. He's really begun to see that markets are going to become a lot more important. And in some ways, they are going to supersede the uh, the even the powers of nation states that, you know, I mean, they, they're hierarchical in their own way. You know, a banker in Antwerp has a lot more power than, you know, some some pawn of the market. But that there's some way in which they triumph over uh, over over the old old style style of hierarchicalism. Although I suppose in their own way, markets are hierarchical. I'm not really organizing that into a question. But, but, but go ahead. Uh, it, it strikes me that we are a middle class society, the first predominantly middle class society in the history of the world. The middle class is, in fact, sets the standard for our society. As a class, it is our most powerful class, even though the upper class members as individuals are more powerful than members of the middle class. So this is a new phenomenon. We are at the cutting edge of history right now. 
All right. We are going to have to start winding this conversation down. I don't even know if I dare um, ask anybody else uh, another question. I do, first of all, want to thank Josh Nalea for producing today's show. And let me also thank Christopher Baum. He was our guest early on, former director of the Goodall Research Center at the University of Southern California and the author of Hierarchy in the Forest, Evolution of Egalitarian Behavior, Melvin Fine. He is a professor of sociology at Kennesaw State University uh, in Atlanta. Uh, And uh, Stephen Peterson, uh, our other guest, I have to scroll down to where I beat Stephen Peterson, uh, but he is a professor at UPenn, Harris, uh, Penn State, Harrisburg, and his book is, uh, he's the co-author of Darwinism, Dominance, and Democracy. Um, once again, thanks. Uh, a couple of things that I would sort of recommend. We've got a couple, couple of seconds left here. Um, look at the work of David Bullier. He's actually been on our show before, but if you just go on to his site, just Google David Bullier. E-O-L-L-I-E-R. He's one of the people looking at this whole question of the commons. You know, how can we, in fact, get past some of the hierarchical structures uh, and live on a more egalitarian basis? Um, but I would recommend him. And then think a little bit more about Wikipedia. I read a really interesting article about Wikipedia in the sense that it's not really non-hierarchical. It sort of devolves into these systems where people just assert themselves with no system to distribute power. People just grab power on Wikipedia. Wikipedia fascinates me. All right. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow. All right, Hallie, what's on the agenda for today? But... I'm just an intern here. It's just my second day. Intern? You are now the president and CEO intern of Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network. So what do you want to do first? Um, give you a promotion and a raise. Atta girl. Hey, it's Kion again. I bet you thought we were done asking for money. Well, the thing is that you just finished listening to this podcast and you're probably really inspired to go do something great because you're more informed than you were before, and, and, and you laughed maybe, and you thought about things that you never thought of, and it would be so cool if you could take, like, 72 seconds to go to wnpr.org slash donate and see all the cool things we have to give away, like uh, my voice on your voicemail or a motivational wake-up message or, or a tote bag or a hat or some socks. Public radio people love tote bags and socks. But the thing is that we're here because of you. We're here for you, and... If you become a member or renew your membership, first of all, it feels really good. And second of all, you keep us going. That's the bottom line. So the number to call if you're into that sort of thing is 1-800-584-2788 or again, wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks.